I will take you on a guided tour through the readings from Luke this week, and then we'll go and look at some of those uh, chapters in Leviticus, and we'll see what we can discover. So, uh, beginning in Luke chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures is about the king of Israel, Yeshua the Messiah, as he is walking down the highway one time with his disciples, and they're walking by a town called Nain. And out comes this funeral procession with a, a hearse. And he actually goes and he jumps, he walks right in front of the hearse as it's driving down the highway, and he stops the thing. And uh, he, he opens the door and he, he has them bring the coffin out. So they bring the coffin out, and uh, he actually has them open the coffin. And uh, the you know that I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, right? I want to make this story really come alive for you. And he, he tells, there's a young man, the corpse is lying there. He's, he's relatively young. He died a premature death, probably of an accident or sickness or something. He, he's his mother's only child and she's a widow and she has just lost it. She is so brokenhearted. And Yeshua is stirred about this. His heart is moved. He feels compassion. So he raises the young guy from the dead. And everybody freaks out, and it's a happy ending story. That's one of my favorite stories in the scripture. It's just so gripping. And uh, I hope you don't mind me paraphrasing a little bit just to make it come alive for you. But that story's in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 11. And I've been talking for the last month or two about how one of the New Covenant promises is that we would do the same feats that our Messiah did, only... According to him, we'd also do greater things than that. And I think I took a poll last time, and none of us has raised anyone from the dead yet. Um, some, some of us, sometimes I pray for people who are sick and they don't even get better. I, I find that frustrating. It tells me that there's more to the life that God has for us than what we have yet experienced. And that tells me that I'm just going to keep desiring that. I'm going to keep pressing in. I'm going to keep doing the things that he said to do so that I can get there. Even for the master, it was a process. It was finally when he turned 30 that he was mantled with that power and he was unleashed to begin doing the works of the kingdom. Maybe there's a training time for us too. Maybe there are years that we spend in the wilderness or in the wings, shall we say, in preparation. I think so. I wanted to point out three things, though, about Yeshua that culminated in this massive power act. Uh, you know, in the scripture it says that a three-stranded cord isn't easily broken. It's exponentially strong. And I actually, I see Yeshua's background being like a three-stranded cord. And I've noticed that when I look at the body of Christ, and I look at the, uh, the believing community today, there are different movements of people that seem to have each one of those cords. They seem to be strong in one of those areas. But it hasn't been until the advent of Messianic Judaism, until the Father brought back and is bringing back that original expression of the faith, like the early Jewish believers, that I see these three chords coming together. Number one, we see that Yeshua was Torah observant. He didn't do any massive power acts until the age of 30, when he said something very key. He said, John, permit this time, immerse me in water. Why? so that we can fulfill all righteousness. So there was something deep in our Savior's heart that was passionate about fulfilling all righteousness, about doing every single thing that His Father said to do, about being strong in the Word and strong in the Torah. 
And we see that when he was tempted also in the wilderness. So that's the first thing. Our Savior was Torah observant. When we walk according to God's law, there is spiritual power in that. And I think maybe that's why the enemy has waged such a concerted battle on the body of Christ to distance us from our Jewish roots and to divorce us from understanding the place that God's law has to play in our lives. We're strong on grace, and that's good. But what we forget is that grace and law balance each other out. They're not contradictory. So that's the number one thing that we can note about our rabbi. The number two thing we can note is that he had a deep heart of love. He was so compassionate. Uh, he, was, he was quite fond of calling himself Ben-Adam, the, the son of man. And in, in Hebrew, that means he was so human. He was the most human human you could ever meet. Uh, in Yiddish, you'd call, he'd say he was such a mensch. And there's something to that. Um, sometimes people's religion actually makes them less human. It makes them colder inside. It makes them insulated from the world around them and less compassionate. But it was not, that was not the case with Messiah. Uh, the powerful works that he did, the healings that he did, raising this young guy from the dead. He didn't just do that because he was into glamour or do it for a show or even do it to prove that God was real. He did it because he saw this lady and she was heartbroken. She was crying and he couldn't stand it. So he had to raise him from the dead. And I I really believe as as we connect with the Father's heart and as we let the fire of his love burn deeper in us, and sometimes we'll have our facades, we'll have our, our false personalities, we'll have our walls broken up, but as he brings us into community, And that happens in the circle like this. It happens in friendship. It happens in marriage. As he brings us into those situations, those walls are going to come down. You can't hold up the false false face forever. We get real. And that's where he's able to warm our hearts and he's able to bring us to life. And he's able to stir that compassion in us from whence comes the power. So that's coming. But as we see, there's a groundwork that he's laying. So this means a lot to me because... I want to get to that place where I raise people from the dead. I want to blow people away with how real God is and how much He loves people and by how powerful He is. I'd love to stop a funeral in the middle, in the middle of a funeral and raise someone from the dead in some church or some funeral home here in Prince Albert. I look forward to that day. But there's, there's a process. So we're talking here about the process by which we get there. And I really believe we're going there. Um, so that's the first thing. A couple of verses later in, uh, John, in Luke, Luke 7.30, Yeshua is uh, talking about Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptizer, and he says something profound. This is Luke's commentary, actually. It says, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the Torah teachers, the lawyers, rejected God's purpose for themselves not having been baptized by John. So we see that in Messiah's first coming, he didn't just come on the scene and start doing the stuff. There was a movement that preceded him that prepared the way for his coming. And I truly believe that it'll be likewise with regards to Messiah's second coming. He's not just going to appear out of the sky like a lightning bolt. There, there is going to be movements that will prepare the body of Messiah for his coming. The things that we have lost as the body of Christ over the centuries. Biblical practice, uh, true doctrine, the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God's presence. To the degree that we've lost those things, He is going to bring them back. There is going to be a restoration of all things before His return. Hmm? 
No, actually, I, I combined the two of them. The first two was first, he was Torah observant. Second, he was, he was connected with that spiritual power source. Here's the scary part, though. You know, often we, we, we as, uh, let's say we as Christians, it's hard for me to say we as Christians because I'm a Messianic Jew, but I'll say like as the broader, broader body of Christ, it's easier for us to look back in history and say, those Jews, how could they not recognize their Messiah? Like ding dong, you know? If I was there, of course I would have recognized him. I would have been one of the inner circle. Those Pharisees, how could they be so thick-headed and religious and they just didn't get it? But here's the scary thing. Judge not lest ye be judged. Because the same human heart that was in those guys is in you and in me. And maybe that stuff is there as a warning to us. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I seriously wonder how many people in the Christian community are going to be missing whatever that current John the Baptist movement is, that Elijah message that is going to go forth to the body of Christ. How many Christians are going to miss that or reject it because it doesn't fit their theological paradigms, because it requires too much change, because it's too different than the way I was brought up in my tradition. Scary stuff. I just pray that we will all have such a deep hunger for Messiah's truth and such a desire to follow him wherever he goes that we'll be willing to leave stuff behind and embrace him. And I pray that he'll give, give all of us as his, uh, his people that discernment to recognize his voice when he speaks and when he calls us to preparation. I personally believe that Messianic Judaism, the Messianic Jewish movement, is a part of the modern-day John the Baptist movement. I think it's part of the Elijah message. We're getting a clearer look at who our God is, the God of Israel, who has a name, Yahweh. That was the Elijah message. He said, guys... You've got to choose who you're going to live for and who you're going to serve. There's this Baal God, and you like to kind of syncretize him with the true God, Yahweh, and mix things up. And you'll do a little bit of Baal worship and some of the non-biblical Baal practices. And then you'll go and you'll worship Yahweh, and you can't do that anymore. That was the Elijah message. And that message is going forth to the body of Christ today also. If Yahweh is your God, then serve Yahweh. And if the Torah, the early books of the Hebrew Bible, if they define who Yahweh is and what biblical worship looks like, then maybe it's time to re-examine that in the place that it has to play in our lives. So that's, I think, a lesson we can take from those Pharisees. <laughs> and there were quite a few Pharisees who came to believe in Messiah too. Uh, we had talked about, in our Lama talk, about why we wear tallits, because they have tzitzit on the corners. And God said to wear those. And in uh, Luke 8.44, we have one of those delightful personal insights into just how Jewish our Savior is. It says she touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And as we already talked about, that's the tzitzit. That's the kraspodon, as we call it in Greek. It's interesting how like, the Gospels repeat that over and over. That must have been meaningful to them. Another uh, really cool insight into the Jewishness of our Savior is how he responds to a couple of the women in this passage. Uh, Luke 8? Or Luke, uh, yeah, Luke 7, sorry. Luke 7, verse 50 is the first one. I love this. It's the, it's the woman who just, who just pours out her heart at the master's feet and, 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 and cleans his feet and uh, wipes them with her hair and pours out that expensive perfume for him. And uh, Yeshua concludes by saying in verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little, Simon. He was talking to Simon the Pharisee there. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And he concludes in verse 50, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I love that, I love that phrase, go in peace. That's a classic Hebrew phrase that Yeshua got straight out of the book of Genesis. That's often how you will part ways. You'll say, go in peace. In Hebrew, it's lech l'shalom. Lech is go or walk. Le is to. Shalom, you know that one. So, can we all say that together? Lech l'shalom. Lech l'shalom. And it literally means go to peace. Go to peace. Oh. Actually, he was talking to a woman, so he would have said lechi l'shalom. That's the feminine. But, um... Interestingly enough, he uses that same phrase in uh, Luke 8.48 with this woman who was healed. It finishes, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. L'chile shalom. Go in peace. So, what a great blessing that perhaps we could incorporate when we bid each other adieu, hey? L'chile shalom. Go, to pe- um, go in peace. <laughs> Rest in peace. Shabbat shalom, eh? Yeah. Sabbath peace sounds a little more attractive, eh? Hey. I, I, I have a question for, for you all. Have any of you ever wished that you had like a higher level of spiritual experience? That you just kind of lived closer to that borderline between heaven and earth? That you just were so connected and you just heard the heavenly voice on a regular basis and had encounters with angels. Maybe they would come and check in in your bedroom at night and light up the room and tell you a message or something. You know, and just uh, had that mystical walk, if I could even call it that. I have to admit, I, I read the scriptures and I think, man, I just don't experience a lot of the stuff that these guys experience. And I want to experience that more. And we see an interesting example of this in Messiah's life in the Transfiguration account in Luke chapter 9. And uh, Luke gives an interesting little detail here that I think is the key to this whole thing. We don't know if Yeshua had any, like, really cool mystical experiences in his teens or in his earlier years. It may have only been that he began to have those in his 30s when uh, he was phased into full-time work for the kingdom. If that's the case, then again, we see that process, being passionate about fulfilling all righteousness, growing in our understanding of the Torah and our application of it, uh, getting that human heart that loves and is compassionate. Maybe that's part of the process on the road to having more cool spiritual experiences too. Could it be? Anyway, here's Yeshua. He's like lit up and Moses and Elijah are conferring with him. And if you read the other gospel accounts, you don't know what they're chatting about. All you know is that they're there talking with him. But Luke actually gives a very key detail. He tells us the content of their conversation in Luke 9.31. Actually, in Luke 9.30, it says, Look, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were, they were communicating some critical details about the sufferings that he was about to undergo. He, uh, maybe they were just encouraging him. I don't know. But what that tells me is that these guys appeared to Yeshua because he needed the message that they had for him. He was about to go through a horrific, brut- brutalizing period of suffering. And he probably needed that event to reference back to. That could be the case. What that tells me, though, is that our, as our commitment level grows to the cause of Messiah as we experience more of the cross in our lives, and as we face greater suffering for the message that He has called us to bear, we may also experience more of those spiritual experiences. Because we're going to need them. 
I, I've read several fascinating books about believers in persecuted countries. Uh, the, one book called The Heavenly Man about Brother Yun in China. Another book called Through the Fire Without Burning by Dmitri Dudeman in Romania. And these men underwent horrific suffering. A terrible persecution. And they also had many, like, many more spiritual experiences than I've ever had. So I, I see that link there. And that might be part of it. Another, another insight into the Hebrew behind the book of Luke, that Hebrew mindset is in Luke 9.51. It says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There are two Hebrew idioms in there. One is his ascension. Uh, what's the Hebrew word for going up to the land of Israel? Going up to Jerusalem. Going up to read from the Torah. Aliyah, that's right. So it says, when the days were approaching for his Aliyah. And I like how it doesn't just say his Aliyah to Jerusalem because Yeshua was about to make the ultimate Aliyah. He was about to go from the earth, specifically from Mount of, the, Mount of Olives, and he was about to make Aliyah to the Father's throne in the highest heavens. That's the ultimate Aliyah, hey? And it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a Hebrew idiom for like, when you determine to do something and nothing is going to stop you. You set your face like flint. You get really tough. And we see that in our Savior's determination to accomplish the mission that the Father gave him. And and then I love how this passage ends too. Luke 9, at the end, we see that Yeshua wasn't very seeker-sensitive. Like, he was so kind. He was so welcoming. Anyone who had a heart to really want to follow God, he was there for them. Uh, He didn't have all this religious bigotry stuff going on that some of the Jewish people in his time had. But on the other hand, if someone wanted to follow him, he really didn't pull any punches. He didn't kind of give him some wiggle room. He said, you know what, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to be tough. There are going to be some nights when we're sleeping out on the ground. And once you start out on this thing, you can't look back or you're done. I mean, man, I, I appreciate that. I'm one of those people where, like, I need to be challenged. I love a challenge. I love having someone challenge me and having, having something to rise to. And I really see that in our Savior's call. That, like, the call to discipleship is it's challenging. It, it takes, like, ultimate devotion. It requires someone's whole life. And uh, I appreciate that. Um, let's look at the book of Leviticus together also. I don't actually have any connections between uh, our New Covenant and our Torah reading today. I'm sorry. We'll just have to go straight to Leviticus and go for it. <laughs> How many of you read our uh, Holy Language Institute's Hebrew Word of the Week? I tried. <laughs> I tried. It had all that Hebrew in there. It's kind of hard to read it when it has all that Hebrew in there, eh? Uh, yes, Darash, that's right. And uh, that's good. If you haven't read it, uh, you can either tell me and I'll send you the email and put you on our email list for the Hebrew Words of the Week, or you can go to our fan page. It's just classical Hebrew on Facebook. And we always have the Hebrew words of the week posted on the, on the wall there, under the notes section. So here's something cool. Oh my goodness. Colin is gone! He must have been raptured. And we all got left behind. Just joking. Uh, I, have, I have something here I want to show you, so I'll just flip it over. This is uh, rather interesting. In the notes of the Hebrew text, it says that this specific word, darash, in verse 16, 
of Leviticus 10 is the middle of the Torah. The exact middle of the Torah. And actually, if you want to flip it one more over, we can have a look at that. Yeah, we are halfway through the Torah readings already. Wow. We're almost over the hill. Yeah, and here, here you, can, you can see it. For those of you who are Hebrew reading, reading enthusiasts, Lois, I think you appreciate this. It says, Darosh, Darash. It actually has the word twice. It repeats itself. And uh, this word here means to, to search for something or to seek it out. Like kind of even going on a quest for it. And uh, it's talking about Moses searching carefully for something. That's how the NASB renders it. And the reason the word is doubled up, darosh is the infinitive. It means like he's seeking and seeking and seeking. And then darash is the past tense. So it literally means like that seeking he sought for it. And why in the world would this word be the exact middle of the Torah? Why is this the heart of God's law? Maybe because the Torah is meat. It's not, it's not, it really isn't spiritual baby pablum, is it? I mean, this stuff in Leviticus, it's some pretty tough chewing, isn't it? I mean, you have to bite off a little bit and really think deeply about it, and man. But, uh, I think it's Luke 10.16. I mean, Leviticus 10.16, sorry. Yeah, Leviticus 10.16. So that's just one of those, I, I feel that that's one of those encouragements from the Father to understand with regards to Torah study that it, it can be challenging. There's a place for going on the treasure hunt, going on the to- a quest to see Messiah in the text, going on this search to see how we can incorporate the Torah in our lives and apply it to our lives today as New Covenant believers. How is that for an interpretation of that, that note? Is that, is that workable? Does that sound too crazy? Okay, okay. It's not Leviticus 10.16, hey? Okay, carefully in that. Leviticus 10.16. Moses searched carefully is the phrase. Okay. Okay. There are three chapters in this reading, and each one of them have a theme. I'd like to go over each of them with you because, man, are they ever relevant to us as believers today. The first chapter talks about the glory. It talks about the glory coming. And in this case, it was like Yahweh's tangible presence. It was the spiritual weight of who He was up close and personal. That's His glory. And I love the people's response. In Leviticus 9.24, the last verse, it says, Then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Wow. That's what happens when his glory breaks out. That's what happens when he reveals himself personally. And we've been talking about how the Torah is a roadmap to the glory of God. If we want to experience his glory, again, there's that process And uh, we were talking in Exodus about how there was a process uh, at the culmination of which they built the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and he came in his glory. And he revealed himself to the whole nation visibly. And uh, we see the same thing here. We see that Aaron and his boys were this newly inaugurated priesthood. And Moses, who is a picture of the Messiah, took them through a process. We read all about that process. It's extremely symbolic in Leviticus 8. 
In Leviticus 8, Moses takes them through this process where he sets them apart, he cleans them up, he puts this blood on their right earlobe and on their right thumb and on their right big toe. And uh, it's all very symbolic of the process that Messiah takes us through as disciples. How he prepares us to be a priesthood that, that, that can be trusted with the power of the creator of the universe, that can speak with his authority, that can represent him to the world around us. Family members, co-workers, other people in the congregation, whoever. That's that priesthood. And uh, I love the culmination directly before the glory comes. It says in Leviticus 9.22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. It goes on in 23 to say, Moshe and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. So what was the final, uh, Leviticus 9, 22 and 23? That's when the fire came out. That's when everybody started shouting and falling on their faces. So here's the question. What was the act that directly preceded that fire and that unleashing of the glory? That was one thing. Blessing. That is correct. Moses and Aaron lifted up their hands and they blessed the people. Let me ask you, are you a priest of the God of Israel? Yes, Yes, you are. You're not a priest of the Levitical order, although that order is important. It has its own job description and function. We're priests of the Melchizedek priesthood, the Messiah is the head of. And as such, we have that authorization to lift up our hands to the people in our lives and bless them and pray for them. And I guarantee you that when you do that, they will see the glory of God. I know. Have any of you experienced that when someone just looks you in the eye and says, I was, I've been praying for you this week. I feel like breaking down and crying sometimes when someone says that. I just see the glory of God. I'm like, He loves me. Wow. Like the creator of the universe actually knows about me and He cares. And I'm not alone. You know? And I, I, I truly believe that there's a place for that. And uh, I think even in family, that's something I'm learning about as a, you know, a relatively young husband and father, that there's a special role that I get to play in the life of my wife, in the life of my daughter, looking at them and blessing them and, uh, and praying for them. And that's what I love about the, the tradition of Torah. You know, every Shabbat on Friday evening, you sit down, you have that candle at dinner, and you pray for each other and you bless each other. It's a, it's a great tradition. And I've been trying to get in the habit of every morning praying for and blessing my wife and my daughter because I've just seen that it makes such a difference in our whole family life and our whole family dynamic. So I encourage you, take hold of that authority the Father's given you as a priest. Pray for and bless each other on a regular basis. And you will see the glory come as a result. You'll see that fire of the Holy Spirit ignited in people's lives. And of course, how do we finish our every Shabbat celebration? We finish, it, we finish it with the Birkat Konim, that priestly blessing. So let that, let, let the, let the, that thought ring in your mind as we, as we do that priestly blessing, that His glory is breaking out upon us. One other thing about that glory coming is uh, in Leviticus 9.6, it says, this is another key. This is part of the roadmap to the glory. Leviticus 9.6, Moses said, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded you to do that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. He said, this is the thing that he's commanded you to do. When you do this, his glory will appear to you. Again, it's that whole key of obedience, isn't it? It's the key of structuring our life according to God's commandments. And I I truly believe that that is why the enemy freaks out 
when people begin to recover the Hebrew roots of their faith, when they begin to read the first five books of the Bible and take it literally, and, and remove whatever theological walls have been built up between them and, and those books. Because when you do that, then the glory of God will come. The weight of His presence will be, will be ushered in. And that's what we're all about. That's, the, that's part of the banner that we are called as a congregation here in Prince Albert to fly for the greater body of Messiah. And then finally, also in Leviticus 9.4, it says that today he's going to appear to you. And that Hebrew word for two is alechem, and it can also be translated as on you. Today he will appear on you. So what does that mean? What it means is when Messiah reveals himself to us, when we sit at his feet in devotion like Miriam, like Mary, and we just learn from him and gaze upon who he is, we're going to start being transformed. We're going to start becoming like him. Little by little, probably imperceptibly to you, but people are going to notice it. They're going to be like, wow, that person is more like Yeshua, more like Jesus than anyone I've ever encountered. And that's, that's the kick of it, eh? That's what I love. Just that when we do that, we become like him. So that's, that's, what, I, that's what I get out of that Hebrew word, Aleichem, that it came in, his glory will appear to you, but as his glory appears to you, it's also going to appear through you and in you. As, and uh, Wow. So let's look at chapter 10 also. Leviticus 10. This is the chapter where, at the height of this glorious spiritual experience, uh, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, um, it looks like they probably got inebriated based on the warning in Leviticus 10, verse 8. Uh, they offered something to Yahweh. It's a strange fire that he hadn't commanded them, something that he hadn't authorized them, and they died on the spot for it. Well, here's the thing. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, you know what, that was the God of the Old Testament. He done with his people. Like, back then he'd get really mad, and he would kill people sometimes, and he was all, all about law and all of this. But uh, that's not true. Uh, God is one. That's what the Shema, the greatest commandment says. God has never changed at all. Uh, there is a side to him that is merciful, that is generous, that is kind, that gives people a second and a third and a fourth chance. And I love that about him. I see so much grace and mercy in the Old Testament. But there is also a side to him that is just, that actually gets angry, however that works. And uh, there's a side to him where he says, okay, no more, that was your last chance. And some people would say, well, he would never do things like that in the church age or in the New Testament. But au contraire, have you never read in the book of Acts the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Holy Spirit and they actually dropped dead on the spot for it. It was just no more grace for them. That's a new covenant phenomenon also. Also in the book of Revelation, we read a lot of that. People who simply refuse to stop worshipping demons, who refuse to you know, stop doing the stuff that they're called to stop doing. And there reaches a point where the globe just hits massive catastrophe. And, uh, you know, thankfully often when we have major catastrophes, it does wake a lot of people up and they start uh, seeking the Creator. And that's a wonderful thing. So I just wanted to say about that, that, you know, He's still the same. And even though He's like a Father that we can dance before and cuddle up to, you know, when I wrap myself in my tallit and you can just feel that, He's also a fierce warrior, and he's a just judge, and he deserves our awe and our respect. And I don't know about you, but I need that in my life. I need a father who just says, okay, these are your boundaries, son. You go past this and you get spanked. You know? <laughs> That's good. It tells me he loves me, even though I hate big discipline in the process. Let's look at uh, our favorite chapter in the book of Leviticus. Every, every Christian loves this chapter. It's our favorite chapter. 
It's the, the food chapter. Don't eat the bat, don't eat the frog, don't eat the this, don't eat the that, etc. Right? Uh, I, I'd like to, instead of jumping into some of the technicalities of this chapter, I want to set a context for this. What are the deep underlying principles with regards to the dietary laws in Leviticus 11? Like, what can we learn about the heart of God in this chapter? Let's look at that first. And in order to do that, we're going to need to flip to another picture. Ooh, isn't this interesting? You can flip back, actually. This is a footnote from Leviticus 11, verse 42. It says, I'll uh, point it out for you here. Verse 42 says, Vav lavti. Uh, and uh, what, that, what, what it's saying here is like in verse 42, the Vav, the letter Vav, is a really big Vav. There's a huge Vav. Watch for this letter. And then it says, and this is the middle of the Torah by its letters. So we saw what the middle of the Torah was by its words. Now we're going to learn what the exact middle letter of the Torah is. And it has a deep teaching that helps us unlock the, uh, the secrets to Leviticus 11. And for those of you who are not familiar with this, when we look at the Hebrew text, this is the original. We remember that our Savior said that not one jot or tittle would pass away from the Torah. And when we see some of these things, like some letters that are enlarged, other letters that are whatever, this is very ancient. The scribes have preserved this. These are like the tittles of the Torah. And so it's part of the thing that we miss when we only read the word in English. And that's why you have me. (laughs) So I can point out some of these cool tittles of the Torah to you. So uh, let's look at that one. Firstly, uh, so what, is it? what did we say? Leviticus uh, thir- 11, verse 42. Leviticus eleven forty-two 42 says, Whatever crawls on its belly. And uh, that's the word belly there. In Hebrew is said, Gachon. Can everybody say Gachon? gachon. Pat your belly and say Gachon. 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 Great. In some churches you'd say, well, pat the belly of your neighbor and say whatever, but I won't have you do that. <laughs> you know when they say, turn to your neighbor and say whatever, but it doesn't work when you're patting your belly. Okay, so it says, all gachon on the belly. And you can see that this middle letter of the Torah is really big. It's a really big vav. You can see this is the, like the line of the bottom of the letters, and this guy is like doubled the size. And we're going to learn about why it's a big vav and why gachon, the word for belly, is the middle of the Torah. And in order to do that, I have to ask you something. What was the very first commandment that God gave humanity way back in the Garden of Eden? Don't eat of a certain tree. What, what was he getting at there? What was, the, what was the intent of the one commandment that God gave, originally gave humanity? Yeah. On a very basic level, he, it was addressed to their appetites. He was saying, Adam and Eve... I don't want you to eat that. Don't eat that. Sounds like a father with a children or a mom with, with, with their kids, hey? Don't eat that. And uh, why did he say that? Maybe because, you know, we, we read about in the book of First uh, John that we have certain things. We have the lust of our flesh. We have the lust of our eyes. We have the boastful pride of life. And that one commandment addressed all of those in one. And when Eve fell for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, that's when the universe went downhill very fast. And maybe our Creator still works in the same way. Maybe He still says, I want you to be holy to me, not only in a spiritual sense internally, but on a physical, concrete level. Be set apart to me. 
I, that's my hypothesis. And I have a verse for you that I think may support it quite well, actually. Uh, something I love is how the Old Testament is the dictionary of the New Testament. You literally cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. Why? Because it's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that all of these basic theological concepts and words are defined for us and illustrated. And uh, we we, we get examples like the word for commandment. Uh, The concept of holiness is the one we're talking about right now. In uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 33, we talked about this when we read this parsha. He says... I don't want you to eat roadkill. You can feed it to your dog, but don't eat it yourself. That's my paraphrase. It says, Be Anshay Kodesh. Be holy men to me. Therefore, don't eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. Throw it to the dogs. So what we learn from this verse is that the biblical definition of holiness isn't just an internal spiritual experience or making sure that you have your halo on straight or whatever we oftentimes think that it is when we float off the ground like an inch or two, you know? Um, no. The biblical concept of holiness is very concretely connected to our lifestyles. What we do on a daily basis. Yay, and even if I dare suggest it, our diet. Did you know that your diet is an element of holiness? Yes, it is. Your diet is an essential element of holiness. So when God calls us to live holy lives, one part of that is eating in a holy way. Now that doesn't make sense, right? Like, eating, holy, what do those have to do with each other? I sit down, I snarf it down, and I keep going, right? Well, if you're me, then that's what you sometimes do. If you work on a construction site, it's what you'll often do at lunchtime. But uh, this, is, this is important. So, I think maybe that's why the word for belly is in the middle of the Torah. In fact, they call this parasha the belly of the Torah. The belly of the Torah. And that's why it's at the very heart of things. Now here's, here's the interesting thing. What, did, what was the enemy's original uh, frontal attack to Eve? When he originally was trying to entice her away from the Creator and trying to tempt her to do the one commandment regarding her diet, what she ate, that the Creator gave her. He said... Yes, that's right. He said, has God really said this? Did he really say that? And then he went on to say, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God is holding out on you. Maybe that one commandment God gave you isn't really for your good. Isn't that true? Now let me ask you something. With much of the pop theology on, with regards to God's dietary laws, what is the usual approach? We, the first approach is, well, God, has God really said that? Maybe he said that, but that was only for a past dispensation. Maybe he said that, but he didn't really mean it. You know, there, there, there's that whole line of thought, that whole line of reasoning. And that's the, the, what's the other thing that said? It's insinuated, well, God's commandments, they're not really good for you. They're not really healthy. He wasn't really serious. I don't know. Have any of you encountered that? I have. But here's the interesting thing. One of the things that the Holy Spirit is calling us back to as the body of Christ is Pauline nomology. Can we all say Pauline nomology? Okay, nomos is the Greek word for law, for the Torah. Pauline is like, uh, you know, pertaining to Paul, the way Paul saw it. And in Romans chapter 7, we learn something very interesting. We learn about Paul's relationship to the law, his attitude towards the Torah. And he says something notable. He says, we know that the Torah is spiritual. So, you know, these, these commandments that seem to be so physical and so unspiritual, they actually are spiritual also. But it doesn't mean they're not physical also. And then he went on to say, we know that the commandment is three things. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. 
So, you know, if the enemy ever comes and whispers to you and says, well, maybe God's commandments aren't good for you. Maybe they're just not good at all. You can say no. Pauline nomology says in Romans 7 that God's commandments are good. This stuff about, like, food laws, it's actually good for me. It's actually healthy. And God did say it. <laughs> so, um, I like that. I like how we can tell the Father that we love him in practical ways like that. Now, I'll, just, I'll mention a couple of things. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter has his vision, right? With the things being let down, different animals. They were clean and unclean animals. Uh, one of the pop interpretations of those chapters is, oh, well, you know, God there was uh, experiencing a momentary schizophrenia, and even though he'd said something before, he decided to change the whole rules. That's, you know, often how it's, it's said. Oh, you know, those chapters are about the food laws. God just did away with them. Okay, here's the problem. There are two problems with that. Firstly, that's in total disagreement with the whole body of Scripture. Here's the second problem. Yeshua said, don't think that. Don't think that I came to do away with the law. If that was the correct interpretation of those chapters, then Yeshua would have come to do away with the law. And we would be having some, I would be having a major faith crisis right now. But that's not the case. What was the application of Peter's vision? He actually gives it straight up in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He says, God has shown me that I should call no man unholy or unclean. So this wasn't about abrogating the food laws. It was about Peter having a problem with Jewish tradition that said that you weren't allowed to go to a Gentile's house or eat with him. That's not biblical law, Jewish tradition. And God had to give him a full-on vision to break through to him. And that was, the, that was the application. God has shown me that I should call no man unholy or unclean. Uh, Peter goes on, oh man, like his fellow Jewish believers, they, they called him on the carpet for this. They took him to task. In the next chapter, they're like, you went and ate in a Gentile's house? And uh, then he goes on to recount the story. He tells what happened. And this is interesting how they conclude. This is the response in uh, Acts chapter 11 verse 18. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, they said, well, it says, when they heard this, they quieted down in glorifying God, saying, well then, God has abrogated the food laws. Now we can ever eat whatever we want. Let's go grab that ham sandwich. (laughs) No, that wasn't the response. That wasn't what they interpreted this chapter to be either. So it wasn't just Peter. This was his fellow Jews. He said, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Hallelujah. Uh, there are a couple other chapters in, Peter's, uh, in Paul's letters that are challenging to understand. He talks about some dietary issues and food stuff. And the important thing to remember about his letters is the context. Firstly, we learn from Acts that Paul said over and over, if you've watched High Sode, First Fruits of Zion's material, then you'll know this. Paul said over and over, I am Torah observant. I've never done anything against the law. He even went to the temple and paid for some guy's sacrifices and did the same sacrifices himself for the Nazarite vow. And this was after he was a believer, just to prove that he continued to have a high regard for the Torah and for the temple service. So that's number one context for Paul's letters. Number two is the warning in 2 Peter. The last couple of verses in 2 Peter, he says, guys, uh, Paul, our beloved brother, wrote about this stuff too, uh, according to the wisdom that God gave him. And uh, some people twist his words to their own destruction. And he said people who are unstable or who are untaught, people who are lawless. Those are the terms he used. You can read it. I'm just summing it up for you. So what that means is there is some stuff in Paul's letters that are hard to understand if you don't have a solid grounding in the Torah 
in the first five books of the Bible, you may be in danger of misinterpreting some of Paul's teaching. And uh, the third context is a raging debate that was happening in the first century. The raging debate that was happening in the first century was, is it okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Is it okay to eat meat that was just... might have been sacrificed to an idol that I buy in the meat market. And Paul, in several chapters of his letters, he addresses this because he was splitting congregations. Uh, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 are a couple of the major chapters about that. Unfortunately, people who don't understand the context of Paul's letters will sometimes go and say, oh, Paul was writing about the Torah. The Torah must uh, not apply anymore. Oh, he was talking about the dietary laws. I guess that doesn't matter anymore. The problem is, if we take that interpretation, then... The rest of the Bible doesn't make sense. All the stuff God said before in our Messiah's example is inconsistent. So uh, I just wanted to give you that context for Leviticus 11. Um, As for your actual application of Leviticus 11, I encourage you, go home, read the chapter, see what the Father speaks to your heart. Uh, Ask him how he wants to write this chapter on your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, We just want to be children who who imitate the Father, who follow our Savior's example. When it comes to the dietary laws, you're never going to get condemnation from me. That's your choice. But it's just this thing that we read in the Bible. I thought it would be good to talk about. So, again, there's room for discussion there. Um, you know, I, I hope you don't feel, you know, we're, I think we're at different levels with regards to observance of some of these things, and that's okay. That was the same way in the first century. The, the believers, there was room to read, to grow, to learn, to discuss, to make choices for ourselves to follow Yeshua. So I, I want to leave it on that note. I, hope, I really hope when I ex- talk about these things, you're not feeling legalism or condemnation or dead work stuff or anything from me. You know, those of you who know me, that is not what I'm about. So I'm all about Messiah's grace, about the salvation we have through faith. And uh, I just want to follow him. And I really enjoy following him with you. So let's finish on that note. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.